What's up, fam? I'm excited to present this interview to you on Masters Week. Um, I had the opportunity to interview David Kelly, who was the ex-COO of Lab Golf. He's since moved on um, and is, you know, doing his own things uh, with DK Golf Enterprises. He is a master shaft fitter, an expert in all things golf, whether it be history, um, technology. Uh, he's a really knowledgeable guy and has been in the industry for a very long time. So it's cool to pick a guy like this is brain um, because he's just been around the block. He's seen a lot of different things um, and he's a really interesting guy as well. So forewarning, the audio on this isn't great on my end. Uh, my mic didn't pick up the audio. My webcam did. So I apologize for that. Um, but this is a really interesting conversation. Again, we get into you know Dave's background, how he started in started playing golf in 1974 uh back in the day in toronto we also get into you know some funny stories like he had the opportunity to sell lee trevino a putter which lee trevino ended up going on to uh win the canadian open with uh, and dave got his name in golf digest for that sale we we talk a little bit about usga rolling back ball performance we get into uh, the business sort of model of golf, uh, golf distribution, how golf retailers, uh, I guess, in this sale of golf clubs have evolved over time. We talk about marketing versus technology and engineering, uh, shaft optimization versus fitting, um, club manufacturing and design, as well as counterfeits. So we talk about a lot of things equipment related on this episode. So I really hope you enjoy Um Dave is accessible via email. His email is 1960dkent, that's D-K-E-N-T, at gmail.com. If you have any questions uh, or need help with a fitting, reach out to him. I believe that's uh, that's it. I hope you enjoy this episode. And here it is. The man, the myth, the legend himself, David Kelly. How's it going? Great, Daniel. Looking forward to talking to you about uh, everything golf club related. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. I've always been a, a gearhead my entire life. Um, I've always cycled through a lot of different clubs, and I've just been a fan of, you know, tech and equipment, uh, craftsmanship and whatnot. So I'm really excited to get into it. But before we get into equipment and any of the hot takes you have in the industry today, I'm hoping you can kind of give our audience a little bit of a background into, into who you are and, and how you really got into the game of golf. Sure. Um, I'm going to go back to the year 1974. Um, seems like ancient times and another, in another uh, uh, complete product cycle, persimmon woods, only steel shafts, no such thing as graphite and composites. Um, I was a broken down hockey player at 14 years old and my family never played golf, except I started caddying in Toronto, um, at a local golf club and, um, sort of fell in love with the game. And this is, you know, before the time with the big box retailers, um, golf club repair was done at the professional level, usually, um either at a wait so when you say big box retailers were you talking like like major major golf like the golf marts and like the the worldwide golf and sort of like that that whole subset of, of retailers right yeah and and you know the the phrase back then and still it's used to some extent today is called green grass everything was at the golf club level um 
there was usually club storage facilities that had a small workshop and, you know, professionals or assistant professionals learned how to repair and build golf clubs, um, do the, the whipping thread on the old persimmon woods and change grips. And, you know, the odd club that would crack, they pull the shaft and, um, you know, reshaft the club. Um, you know, there was no retail really other than at, at, at the golf course level. Gotcha. Okay. No, just curious. All right. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you right there, but I'm just curious, like how everything is, was distributed back in the day, you know, cause it's a totally different supply chain right now. Right. Very different. And, you know, you had, you had professional salespeople uh, who were often golf club professionals who morphed into the, into the sales game that worked for McGregor and worked for Wilson and worked for Spalding. Um, and they sold, you know, the widest array of equipment and they would go from golf course to golf course, uh, merchandising and selling the product to the golf professionals. Um, it would end. Right. Wait, so back in that day was like, what were the major brands? Cause you said 1974, right? I mean, today we think of Callaway, Ping, TaylorMade, right? As, as sort of like the top three or big three. Obviously, you know, I'm probably forgetting a couple in there. But back in the day, I mean, you'd mentioned McGregor. You'd mentioned some of these other brands. Like, who was sort of dominating the space when you first got into the uh, industry? Well, of course, uh, Wilson and McGregor were, were the mm -hmm. two top dogs. They were played heavily on the tours. Uh, Jack Nicklaus was a McGregor guy. Johnny Miller was a Wilson guy. Um, uh, there was Louisville Slugger, Hillrich and Bradsby. That's a club that Bobby Nichols played, Fuzzy Zeller. Um, there was... Wait, Louisville Slugger made... Was it, Were they owned by Wilson and McGregor? That was its own brand. Like, that was that was a separate entity it's apart from their baseball. H&B, Hillrich and Bradsby. They made the power-built line of clubs. Uh, they made exceptionally good equipment. Persimmon Woods were highly sought after. Their forged irons were, were the highest quality. Um, so let's go back uh, a little bit even further. The Spalding uh, Equipment Company was a dominant name. Um, and of course, were they making balls too, and and like golf clubs as well, or was that at that point was it just the ball? Uh, no, it was clubs, and the club started with Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones back in the 1930s had his own line of Spalding uh, top flight branded clubs. Now the Spalding name is long, long gone. Um, it's own the top flight brand is owned by Cal the Callaway Golf Club Company. Now they, they shuttered the golf club division. Um, and um, I think it's, they turned it into a store, a store line brand uh, box sets and, you know, sell 13 14 piece sets to beginning players so uh the but back in the 70s the the dominant names were spalding mcgregor wilson in the early 80s you had brands like ram uh golf that tom watson made famous um and you know all these companies started in either in Massachusetts, it's where Spalding was located, or they, or they were in California. And, 
you know the the let's get back to the, the, the how they were sold. So you had these salesmen who had territories, and they would go to the golf professionals, and they'd go from club to club, and they'd book orders in the in the fall, deliver in the spring, uh, in the you know up north, and um, it was a little bit more year round, obviously in the in the south, but um, you know that was the life. It was a it was a traveling salesman who covered huge territories and represented these these uh these dominant companies didn't the pro didn't the pros used to own like the entire pro shop as well one of my really good buddies was telling me that like back in the day like the actual golf pro used to own and sort of like manage the inventory and the merchandise and it it, it was like his own entity and that was like a deal that existed does this is this right? Have you heard of this? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. there. There was there was a lot less competition. He didn't have to worry about price fighting, infighting. You know, basically the prices were a lot more stable than they are today. Right now, you have any any host of of outlets for getting the pricing that you want on high quality equipment. Back in the day, there weren't that many there weren't that many options. Um, in fact, there's pre- some pretty famous catalogs that document the history of McGregor and Wilson um, golf, uh, written by a fellow named Jim Kaplan, who's deceased now, uh, who lived in in Chicago, who I was very very close with. Um, we'll get into that story in a little bit, but Mr. Kaplan wrote. Uh, these books that catalog the history of the models of um, classic clubs in the Wilson and, and uh, power built and um, McGregor lines. And they were, they were a compendium of catalog pages from the Sears catalog where they would sell them through the Sears company and they would have these, or salesman's manuals, but they would have these huge catalog that would uh, that get updated every year with the new models. And the advertisements would be, you know, have Ben Hogan on there, Byron Nelson, Tony Penna, all these old famous names who would endorse the clubs as part of their meager remuneration at the time. And uh, so Kaplan got the bright idea. Well, if we're going to try and figure out the history of these brands, we'll just take the catalog pages and we'll make a book out of it. It's still used today. If you go to any of the classic club Facebook groups, they reference the Kaplan books um, pretty much, excuse me, pretty much exclusively because it's a great resource for the history of classic, the production of classic golf clubs. I was lucky enough. But with this, was it brand agnostic or was it pretty much, was it only specific to it? Like, you know, we had mentioned some of these brands. Did they have everything in there or was it just a, a few brands or a couple brands? It, it's <clears throat> the McGregor book was specific to McGregor, all the McGregor models. And it started off as, as you know, from the mid 1930s. And I think the last entry in Kaplan's book was in the 70s. So it was all of these classic persimmon woods, forge clubs, and um, they were famous for having the craziest serial numbers and model numbers that nobody could keep straight. 
So if you wanted to identify, you know, what pre-XL too, pre-XL. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you wanted to identify what year a particular persimmon wood with a red insert came out of, you'd have to identify the model number and you'd have to go and say, well, that was made in, you know, 1952 between October and November. And, you know, these production records um, existed. And so what Kaplan did was he, he tried to, as best as he could to put all that together. The, the, the funny part of the story with Kaplan is I ended up becoming very, very good friends with him. And I helped um, with some of the research. He lived in Chicago and uh, my close association with the Wilson Sporting Goods Company uh, head office in Chicago brought me uh, side to side with Jim Kaplan and um, I can remember going over to his house several times and helping him pour through these catalogs um, and, and making sense of them. Uh, he had, you know, he would buy huge collections of golf magazine or golf digest from all different years. And he'd rip out all the ad- advertisements and make photocopies out of them in order to catalog all the years. But let's get back for a second here. So 1974, I became a caddy. Yeah, my bad. Derailed you there. Sorry about that. Yeah. I I became a caddy and I worked in a pro shop at a uh, pretty prestigious golf course that was very, very close to my house in Toronto that had had held the Canadian Open. Matter of fact, my father's business partner was a member at this golf course. So I, I got into caddy. I got to know the pro very very well and he put me in the back shop looking after and cleaning and storing clubs well as part of the wind up in the late summer and early fall the pro would have us go and take all of the head covers off all of the woods and inspect them for the members to find out you know which ones were in disarray and which ones needed new grips and so on we would make a list and take it up to the pro and he would contact the members and say hey you know well while the winter, while the snow is flying, let's, uh, let's repair your clubs and get them in tip-top shape for next year. There was a lot less transition, I guess is the word for it, in golf clubs back in the day. You bought a set, you hung... As in, like, from a cyclical, like, they, they weren't released as quickly, or what do you mean by that? No, if you bought a set, you hung on to it, you hung on to it for years. You would see members would hang on to their Wilson staff irons that they bought in 1972. And, you know, by the time they, by the time they would think about replacing them, it was, you know, five, six years later. My gosh, I deal with guys today that don't go five weeks without replacing their irons. Yeah. I know some guys like that too. Yeah. We call them club hose. <laughs> club hose. And. You know, it's funny, you had a guest on a, a week ago that's amongst the biggest club hole in the entire world, whether or not he admits it or not, and that's Sam Hahn from Lab Golf. Uh, yeah. No, he definitely admitted it in the episode. Did he? Yeah, he did. Well, thank God for him being honest and true to himself because he is one of the worst. However, um, so, of course, what went along with inspecting and, and looking at all of these clubs was we, I was taught to fix them. I was taught to rewind the whipping thread on a, on, a, on a club that had come unwound or that was in disarray. 
instead of putting, you know, electrical tape to hold it on, we would just start over from scratch and, and do that. Um, we would, you know, I'd learn how to regrip it 14, 15 years old. I learned, um, you know, how to, how to take sole plates off woods and because they would heave, they weren't solid like they are today. They would heave and the dirt and the grass would get in between the wood and the sole plate and moisture would get in. And so we, we learned to do all of that, um, at the golf club level. And, um, it was like an apprenticeship. It really, it really was. Getting your, getting your fingers dirty is the best way to learn because you, you learn through making mistakes. You have this nervous energy about not screwing the members clubs up because you still want it to work there the next year. So it was a trial by fire for sure. Um, And that lasted several years. And then I started buying clubs. I, I, I started buying ones that I love to look at. I started fixing them at home. My parents were very indulgent. Um, we had, you know, vice in the, in the basement. And, you know, I would, I would just start doing all the stuff on my own. Well, of course, that morphed into doing it for other people. Um, all the time I was... But real fast, at that time, what was your favorite? Like, were you playing, like, the Hogan Irons? Or I, I'm, like, not that familiar with, you know, the actual models that existed back in the 70s like an 80s so like for you at that time what was something that sort of stood out as far as like shape that you loved so now 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 i'm gonna date myself um i'm a i'm a jack nicholas guy i i saw jack nicholas play from the early 70s on i followed him um everybody Everybody loved Arnold and everybody or loved Jack. I was a Jack guy. He was he was the absolute assassin on the golf course. He represented McGregor, which was the premium brand at the time, along with Wilson. Um, and the way people feel about Tiger Woods today is the way people felt about Jack Nicholas before Woods. Um, he was an amazing talent. He hit it further than just about anybody on the planet. How far are we talking? Because everyone says Jack would pipe it, but like, are we talking like 300? Like, how how far did Jack actually hit it? Because you, you saw him play in person, right? I did. I did. I was actually I was actually lucky enough um, to work at to get a job working tournament week at the Canadian Open uh, every year from 1976 onward. Um, and I did the same thing. I hoisted bags. I worked, you know, in the, in the bag room for the week um, and got to see professional equipment and how much different it was and what they did uh, to, to, to clubs for the, for the touring professionals. Um, but your question, your question about how far Nicholas could hit it, I, so people self-validate and what I mean by self-validate is people try and make sense of their self-worth 
as sports fans by identifying with the flavor of the day. Michael Jordan's a flavor of the day. Tiger Woods is a flavor of the day. Um, LeBron James is a flavor of the day. Aaron Judge is a flavor of the day. People can identify when you talk to older people that have cross-pollination of the greats, the conversation becomes a lot different. You're talking about different equipment, different physical sets. There's no question about players today are in much better shape. How much better? That's, you know, very much up in the debate. Nicholas was an athlete. He was a basketball player. He was a football player. He chose golf and he was huge. He was an absolute tank. Um, he, he, he had unbelievable strength, physical strength. Um, so the best way to qualify that there's a Canadian open course, Mississauga golf club in Toronto. And they have a, um, their 13th hole is a par five. Back in the day, it played 525 yards. Today, people would be hitting driver eight irons. There was, uh, up until 1974, only two people had ever hit that, ever hit that green in two. There's a creek and a pond in front of it. It's a carry. It's up on a hill, so on and so forth. Nicholas actually lost the Canadian Open in 1974 by trying to go for it in two with a driver and a three-wood. Um, up, up until that point, only two people had ever hit that green in two. And that just kind of puts things in perspective. Today, it's a driver and an eight for some guys. Um, but that speaks more to the ball, to the equipment, persimmon woods versus titanium, investment cast irons versus, you know, really heavy forged irons. But it also speaks to the level of fitting and the choices that are available today and the science behind club fitting, which is part of what you and I are going to talk about here in a few minutes, is, you know, what is fitting? What, is, what does it mean? What does it do? What is the purpose of it? Um, and, how does it and how does it really relate to what happened today i'm not sure if you picked up on the on the news wire today but the usga and the royal and ancient golf association have rolled back the distance on the ball starting in 2026 that just came oh, up wow. no i didn't see that so how, how what are they going to do or how are they going to change that it's, it's just going to like fly a percentage of what it currently does well they'll they'll test they'll force it back on the manufacturers to produce a ball that fits within testing parameters and the testing parameters now are uh, a 315 yard drive at 120 miles an hour club head speed is the maximum velocity, maximum distance that you can get um, out of a particular ball. doesn't matter what the brand is. They're rolling it back to the same distance, but at 120 um the increasing the speed to 127 miles an hour. So what they're saying is in order to hit at 315 or 320 yards, 
as a standard, you have to have a swing speed of 127 miles an hour, a clubhead speed of 127 miles an hour versus what it is today at 120. Those are huge numbers still. Is that going to be for just the PGA? Like, will, will normal people get to play like the old ball? So there's right? a, I mean, that's not going to yeah, be in tournaments and whatnot. That's a great point because there's a concept that's called bifurcation. And bifurcation means are there two different standards? Is there going to be a standard for the PGA Tour? And is there going to be a standard for Joe Average? Well, Callaway, about 20 years ago or 15 years ago, came out with a driver that was deemed illegal. It was called the ERC. And what it was, it, 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 it broke the standards for core, which is coefficient of restitution. It's basically the springboard effect of a face in a metal wood. You impact the ball, the face distorts, and then it springs back to its original. And that trampolining effect is what gives the David Tuttleman and I actually talked about this. I have yet to release that episode, but yeah, I am familiar with coefficient of restitution. Sure. Gotcha. All right. And now going. they call it now they interject call it, shout out to David Tuttleman real fast. Now they call it call, now they call it characteristic time CT. It's 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 basically it's basically a pig with a different dress on. It's the same thing. So so you have this trampolining effect, and they want to put a muzzle on it. So Callaway figured out how to really make the average golfer longer. The problem was, is that for the professional golfer and for great amateurs, they really took advantage of it and it helped them exponentially more than the average weekday golfer, the weekend golfer. So they rolled that back. They put a limit on it. Well, they're going to do the same thing with the ball now. They're going to force the ball manufacturers to to, to tone it down. And the problem is with the, you know, with the advances in shaft technology, with the advances in, in head design, aerodynamics and conditioning of the athlete, you're going to get now, and there's already a couple out there, 8,000 yard golf courses. And that's a problem. They're going to, they, they're, they, you have maintenance costs, you have land acquisition costs, you have great old golf courses like Marion uh, in Philadelphia, Inverness in Toledo, Canterbury in Cleveland. All of these golf courses are being made essentially neutered uh, because they don't have enough land and there's no place else to expand. So you either you either have greens that run 15 on the stint meter and, you know, have slopes of, of, you know, 7% or, or you try and roll back the ball. Now, is that fair? I'm not going to get into that debate, but they have to do something. Yeah, true. I mean, guys are piping it, but I'm just thinking about it from my perspective, like as a, as an amateur, right? I'm not a professional. I like to play. I'm like single digit, you know, like right around scratch. But at the end of the day, like, I just want to bomb it. But I, I get their perspectives. Like, these courses are basically too short. I mean, guys are freaking carrying it like 330, 340 now. You see some guys hit it like 400 yards, no problem. It's just interesting to see that take place here. And I didn't even realize that that news was released. But I felt like we all knew it was going to come eventually, right? So it's a mistake to think that there always that there weren't always bombers. 
I, 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 I will tell you there, there's always been guys like DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, these guys that hit it, you know, on otherworldly distances. Back in the day, there was Dan Pohl, Andy Bean, Jim Dent, um, Nicholas. And I'll tell you how long Nicholas was. So we kind of, we kind of glossed over that, the answer to your question. You can look up the PGA driving distance stats, which you have to take a little bit with a grain of salt because there were some guys out there that were so long that they were teeing off with one irons, the ancient one. Um, and they had, they only counted two or three holes around. And so it was a, a, a real half-baked uh, average, but Jack Nicholas was 40 years old and he was number three on the tour in driving distance in 1980, the year he won the U S open at Baltus roll. So your, your question to me, how long he was, he was as long as he, as he had to be. And he was as long as anybody out there, I guess a more relevant question is that's a little bit more speculative. What would he do with today's equipment? What would he do? What would he do if he had a, you know, a hazardous black or a Ventus TR shaft in a 460 yard, 466, uh, 60 CC driver head that played 45 and a half inches long instead of 43 and an eighth. What would Nicholas have done? Um, he would have been, he would have been at least the longest driver on the tour. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Right. In today's day, like amongst like the Brysons and, and these guys. Yeah. I mean, he had ridiculous strength that, uh, you know, th- these guys build speed. You've, you've seen all those training aids that build speed, build speed, build speed. There still is a place for somebody who is just otherworldly strong. Um, does that translate into speed? Well, speed is built on flexibility and, you know, ground force leverage and using the ground and, you know, these, these, that's how you see all of these young ladies that are hitting it so far, you know, 280, 285, 275, 290. And they, you know, they, they, they don't weigh a, an ounce over 110 pounds, 115 pounds um, because they use, they use the physics so well, they're taught remarkably. That's that's as opposed to just being brute strength, you know, to having brutes. You know, we, we're, we're skipping around talking about the equipment thing, but I just want to answer your question about. So I was a McGregor guy. I was a Jack guy. Um, 1979 was a real turning point for me. Uh, I worked at the Canadian Open and I was a classic club collector by then to the tune of at least. 200 putters um persimmon wood 200 easily i read an article i read an article in may of that year in golf digest where lee trevino had been complaining mightily about his putting stroke and the canadian open that year was in july i was working at it I had access to the players' parking lot at Glen Abbey. I drove 
into the parking lot with a trunk full of putters and open my trunk and all the caddies that passed by uh, started whispering. And it was, a, it was a trove. It was, you know, the 8802 putters that, you know, Ben Crenshaw made famous, you know, the design by Arnold Palmer Wilson putters, Tommy Imer Iron Masters. Um, just, I had a trunk full. Big Herman, Lee Trevino's caddy, walked by and poked his nose in the trunk and said, I think my boss needs to talk to you. So four o'clock that afternoon, it was on the Monday of the Canadian Open week. Uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, Trevino came up to my trunk and said, I understand you got some putters. I said, yeah. He took, I took a couple of bags out, stood them up. He started grabbing everyone inspecting them and he grabbed a putter and he started walking away and I, I I didn't know what to say and I started walking after him and Herman got in between us and said oh boss man's just going out to try this right well now what do you say to that's Lee pretty Trevino? epic I, you're just, you can't say no to Lee right he's a legend say no the problem is he disappeared with my putter <laughs> And that putter cost me $75. And I don't know if you, you know how much $75 in 1979 was, but, you know, when I wasn't working at the golf course, I was making $3.25 at a, at a tire distributor in Toronto. Uh-huh. $75 was an awful lot of money. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I wonder what that'd be equivalent to, but I can't, I can't imagine with inflation. Did he ever give it back to you? So the next day, he showed up for his practice round at eight 30 in the morning. And he said, I want this putter. What do you want for it? And I said, well, um, I'm not sure what you value it at, it at but um, how, how's, how's $125 sound. Ooh, and, come up. and he said, $125 is fine. Do you play? do you play golf? And I said, yes, sir. I play golf five times, six times a week. Uh, I probably play 36 a day on this, on the weekends. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I intend on being a player. And he said, well, you'll need some balls. So he took two dozen balls of McGregor tourneys out and threw them in my trunk, gave me the $125 and walked away with the putter. Lee um, Trevino, a legend in the so, game of golf, really. So the story gets a little bit better. The pro am, the pro am was on the Wednesday, uh, and Trevino went out and shot sixty four at Glen Abbey. It was at that time the unofficial course record. Won the pro am, and told the reporters afterwards that he had bought this putter off this kid in the parking lot. And it was the greatest thing. He got the greatest deal in the world for this thing. He doesn't, he didn't know he would have paid a thousand dollars. That's how good this putter is. And he started rubbing it in. Yeah. Was it just like a bladed, like old school, like it what was kind of putter was armor, it? It was a Tommy Armor Iron Master, 34 inches long with no offset. It was exactly what he had been looking for. And I had one. So, the next morning I wake up 
and splashed all over the newspapers in Toronto's sports section was Trevino buys a putter off, off a kid in the parking lot, wins the Pro-Am, is now the favorite for the Canadian Open. Now, I thought that was pretty cool. That's <laughs> epic. Are you kidding me? And how old are you at this time? You're like lo- less than 20 or like mid, you know. Like, I was 19. Okay. Yeah. I was 19. So I was a bit of a promoter myself. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I showed up with a trunk full of golf clubs. <laughs> so I went up and because I was working there, I had access to the press room. So I went out and I talked to the sports reporter from the Toronto Sun. And I introduced myself and I said, I'm the guy who sold the putter. Next thing you know, on the Friday morning, my name's all over the Toronto Sun. So I got my name in the paper. Now, here's the catch. Trevino went out and won the tournament. Damn. So by Sunday. That thing definitely was worth $1,000 then at this time. Right. So. He wins. I don't know what the what the first place prize was. It was thirty five or forty or fifty thousand dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now he starts rubbing it in in the press conference after the tournament's over, saying, "Well, you know, the kid should have should have probably gone for a percentage." And <laughs> so that's so that, epic. That's like the most that, epic story I've ever heard in my life. That was my fifteen minutes of fame yeah. until. The following month, Golf Digest came out, and they had this section at the back of the Golf Digest at the time called Tour Talk. Mm-hmm. And the guy who wrote the article, who had never talked to me before, put my name in Golf Digest. I was hoping at one time I was going to get my name in there for my playing ability, winning some tournament or whatever. Now here it is because I sold Trevino a putter for $125 that he won the Canadian Open with. And I got my name in Golf Digest. And believe it or not, I still have two copies of the original 1979 Golf Digest sitting in my office that has my name in it. That's the only time my name's ever been in Golf Digest. <laughs> That's badass, though. I mean, at least it's in there, right? Yeah. So I was hoping that I could get Trevino one day to sign one of the copies. He's kind of elusive. I know he lives in Dallas. I'm there all, a lot, but I still haven't ever connected with him. But I would love to get him to sign to sign one of the copies of it. And then I, I, I probably, I'll probably get it done next trip or the trip after he's, he's, uh, he's actually quite approachable now. Um, back then, I actually emailed me. him the other day. I'm trying to get him on the pod. We'll see how it goes. You know, you got to shoot high. He's, uh, he has that brand. It's called like super Mex or something like that. Uh, yeah. I think his son, Daniel or his grandson runs it. He's, um, Back in the day, let's just say he was a little cantankerous. He was a little cranky, and he wasn't the smiling, jovial person that the persona portrayed. When you got him out of the spotlight, he was a cranky guy. Right. I kind of want to dial into something right now specific to, like, what it was like to be on tour back in the day, because they didn't have necessarily tour vans, right? I mean, you're literally 19 years old driving around with bags or a bag like you said a trunk full of putters right in your car and tour players are approaching you to try out clubs i mean back in the day what was it like to be on tour from an equipment perspective could you find 
clubs or did you have to like go to go to yard sales or, or things of that nature? Like, how would you even get clubs? And I have a second question, but I, I want to dive into it. I want to hear your response. So back in the day, the companies had tour departments. They, they, you're right. They didn't have, they didn't have uh, circulating tour vans. There was no, there was not enough money in it. Um, and the choices, the fitting choices, the availability of different kinds of shafts, was also a mitigating factor because back in the day, True Temper was the number one and the only game in town, pretty much. Um, so. Everybody used the same shafts. But you can go from tour stop to tour stop now. And if you're lucky enough, you can find some golf repair or golf stores. And they have on the walls pictures of Trevino and Nicholas and Tom Watson and Ray Floyd, who actually would break a club and they would stop in in different cities. They would stop into these repair places who were typically owned by older guys who were craftsmen. They were club builders. They weren't fitters. They weren't track band guys. They weren't GC quad guys. These were like your Italian shoemaker, your, you know, your plumber. And, and that's, that's what I cut my teeth on. I cut my teeth on, you know, fixing golf clubs. And that's how I got into the business. And that's how I stayed in the business. Um, and be- because I became, from the ground level up, I became really familiar. And I had a lot of expertise in golf club design. Now, it served me well because what happened later on was I got into manufacturing club assembly and club engineering, which was a dirty business, right? You have to get your hands dirty. You have to know, you have to screw your apprenticeship. And I, I, I started off, there was a, a, a twist of fate. You're familiar with uh, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. Yeah, no, I've heard of NAFTA. I couldn't recite it to you, but I've heard of it for sure. So it's the trade tariff deal that took away tariffs and duties between Canada and the United States that didn't exist in the 1980s. Clubs that were made in the United States, the minute they crossed the border into Canada, paid a hefty tax um, as, a, as an import duty. As a result, companies like Spalding and Ram and McGregor and Titleist later on and Cobra they all set up small manufacturing operations to service the Canadian market and England. Um, because when they provided manufacturing jobs, the duties went away. They were tax exempt. But if you brought in a finished club, you paid duties on it. So I got in and started working assembling golf clubs in Canada. What year are we talking about? Real fast, just to give people context, because we said 1974 was when you like really started working in golf. So when when was this? Like when did you transition to the manufacturing side? Uh, 83. Mm-hmm. So nine 83. years after. 
Um, and by that time, and by that time I was, I had a significant level of expertise in assembling and fixing and building golf clubs. I, I had, you know, there were no, there were very few tools to do it. We developed jigs and vices and, and, you know, different implements to, to facilitate this and don't, don't ever lose sight of the fact that at this time we were still talking woods. This is the age of persimmon woods. Metal woods hadn't shown up on the market yet. Investment cast irons had just started. Um, and repair facilities, repair shops were dotted all over the landscape. You could go into different places, different cities, and every one of them had a golf club repair place. So you'd talk, you'd ask me the question about the tour life. Well, pros would actually seek out these places in Fort Lauderdale and Toronto and, you know, Los Angeles and San Diego and every place had somebody that could build golf clubs that had a reputation for it. Mm. Um, but at the time too, from my understanding, based on this conversation, like what, the way I sort of imagine it's you go to San Diego, you see, you know, one sort of brand, you go to Toronto, you see another brand, you go to this other place, you see another brand. Would you agree? Was it pretty, I guess the word maybe consistent comes to mind. Like if I were to walk into a San Diego shop versus a Toronto shop, I'd probably find different stuff, right? Back in the day. So I think the word you might want to use is territorial. Um, so because be, because Toronto was was the biggest golf market in Canada and you know you could pretty much get everything but if you went to if you went to Tennessee Wilson had a manufacturing facility a ball factory in Jackson Tennessee they had a club assembly place in Tullahoma Tennessee people played Wilson sporting uh, Wilson staff irons sporting wilson sporting goods equipment they played it in tennessee and georgia north georgia and kentucky um you moved up towards cincinnati and everybody played powerbilt louisville slugger um uh georgia was a big mcgregor place they had a factory in albany georgia up in the northeast spalding was the king um california got a bit of everything California. I think that's really interesting. No, I think that's super cool. How it's like yeah. territorial and spread out throughout the U.S. You'd find yeah, some I mean, guys like this, find some guys like that, no matter where you are at, in the country or even in the world. You know, I guess you can you could say that now, right? Sure. But it's probably more but, more balanced, more blended. I mean, it's kind of like the argument: do you, do you have an iPhone or do you have a an Android? There are some places, like if you go to Silicon Valley, every you know, I'd say. Eight out of ten people have iPhones just because of how dominant Apple is out in the marketplace. It's not the same everywhere else. Well, in golf, uh, it was very much like that. Um, I'll tell you another real hotbed for Wilson Sporting Goods products was in Scotland. They had a manufacturing facility for the U for the UK and Europe in Scotland. You can find more Will old Wilson staff iron sets you know, rummaging around bags in Scotland than any other place on, on the planet. 
Um, but the big game changer was in the uh, was the evolution of a brand called Lynx. And if anybody, yes, if everybody remembers Lynx, Fred Couples played the iron, Ernie played the iron, uh, and Ping. They fought over the marketplace, and that's what started the downturn for Wilson and McGregor. And these were California companies. And they were California companies because that's where the investment casting business really uh, started. That's really where it took shape. Was it always in Southern Nevada? No, this was even in L.A. 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 was servicing and making aircraft parts. Lockheed and McDonnell Douglas had huge manufacturing facilities in LA. Tell them told me this as well. We talked a little bit about this, but there was like a transition, right? Because of the war, like there is a demand for aerospace engineers or just engineers in general, right? And they made that switch to golf. And they all, they all love California and they all love to play right. golf in the week. Yeah. Now the, the, the natural evolution of that was that they took those manufacturing techniques about making aerospace parts and they started making sporting goods okay in this case it was golf club heads so so no longer did you have costly and really really bad polluting facilities that were chroming and making forge clubs all you had to contend with was casting stainless steel heads and finding somebody to finish them and polish them that was a game changer um so around but that's when we saw like new new sort of uh materials and whatnot right start of started to get integrated into like golf equipment and is that another part of why there was such like almost like a industrial revolution in the club that's a great phrase the industrial club revolution because what came was when they got tired of making iron heads they spawned the development of the investment cast metal wood. TaylorMade Woods was a direct beneficiary of the changes in manufacturing techniques and that whole development, that whole closet industry that was born in Southern California is the, is the beginning, the genesis of all of this, what we're seeing today. Wait, so this kind of, okay, I don't, I don't, before we get into that, because that was amazing right there, one thing that comes to mind is, we had talked a little bit about the ball, right, getting rolled out, and I think you said 2026. So back then, I'm just trying to imagine what it was like from, and we had brought up Industrial Revolution of the club, right, from going to wood to metal. Like, that had to have been such a mind-blowing thing to have taken place at the time, right, because guys are just hitting it freaking way farther. And more accurate. So you're missing, you're missing a piece of the puzzle. Uh-huh. And the, the piece of the puzzle you're missing here is the evolution of speed. So what happened was you could make metal woods lighter and less dense than persimmon woods. Therefore, you could make them longer. The longer you made them, the more club head speed you can generate. It's just physics. Before 
balls really developed, they were Bellato. And Bellato was a, you know, a, a, a rubber byproduct, natural occurring uh, material. There were elastic wound cores. But as you increase the speed, what they started doing was they started increasing the speed and deforming the golf ball so badly that they would actually be, they, they, the phrase was called turning it square. And so you'd have club pros, um, uh, sorry, tour pros would be replacing their balls almost every two holes. The ball's turning it square. Up. I've never heard that term before. That's pretty sweet. It's a, it, I'm going to want to bring it, that it's, back. It's an old phrase. They yeah. turned the, made the ball square. Uh, and that would just be, they would deform it. Now, um, <laughs> you get this polymer chemist at DuPont who designs this resin, and the resin was called polyurethane. Uh, it turns out that you can make a golf ball out of urethane. You can make a cover out of urethane. It just depends on the tooling that you use. So for a while, they, they kept winding the balls as they did forever. Instead of using bolata on the outside, they used urethane, which was a lot more abrasion resistance, had a lot more abrasion resistance, and wouldn't crack, wouldn't deform, wouldn't turn square. So now all of a sudden, you can increase the speed and the resiliency of the ball, and all of a sudden, the distances went crazy. Now think about when Tiger Woods came onto the scene. 1994, five, six. And he came on as a legend, right? He had the most club head speed. He had, uh, you know, tremendous distances that, you know, heretofore nobody had ever seen. There's a legend. He, when he went to Stanford University, there's a hole out there with a tree right in the middle of the fairway. And I played at Stanford several times and I used to hit a driver and it's either you went left of the tree or right of the tree. And I, I remember standing on the tee and, you know, at the time I was, I was still playing really well and hitting it long. I was a fairly long hitter myself. And, you know, I'd bounce, I'd bounce my drive, you know, a couple of bounces in front of the tree and it would kind of skirt to the side and it would be a great shot, successful. And I turned to the guy that I was playing with and I said, man, I really got that one. I said, it's a good thing I got past that tree. And he goes, yeah, we got this kid out here that plays for the university golf team. His name's Woods. And uh, he flew a three wood over the tree last week. I, that was an eye opener. So he brought something to the game that, you know, other people had had that I mentioned Nicholas before was a long hitter, Jim Dent, Dan Pohl, but, Woods now was using turbocharged equipment and he was still at that time really, you know, he wasn't the physical specimen he is now. He was just a really speed oriented, lanky kid. And, it, and he just hit it so fast. So the equipment let him do that. And the balls stood up a lot better. And all of a sudden scores started plummeting for all of those reasons. Now, at that time, metal woods were still made out of stainless steel. They weren't titanium, and they weren't carbon composite. They were stainless steel. They were hollow shells that were welded and ground and painted and so on, 
and and that's the way you made a metal wood. The game changer that a lot of people don't aren't aware of is that when you make a when you cast titanium, when you pour titanium, it's an extremely volatile material, and when it reacts with air, it's explosive. So the trick to casting titanium was to do it in a vacuum. So they had to develop machinery that would allow them to cast titanium pieces and not have them explode, um, you know, from the process. And when they, when, when that equipment was developed, things just went into another, another realm. Right. So we're talking that, like mid nineties. Uh, no, this was a little bit later on into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So like, um, which club specifically, just to give people some context, like if you can, I don't know, that's kind of putting you on the spot, right? Because I want to sort of like contextualize this with like a, a model or, or like series of models oh, from the OEMs. There's only one we need to talk about. Sasquatch? That's the Great Big Bird. Oh, the Big the Bird. Great Big Bird. Right. So Callaway at the time was making putters they were an upstart company. They were located in Southern California, upstart company. They ended up partnershiping with a company called Ruger Titanium. Ruger is the gun company. They, had a, they built a factory in Prescott, Arizona, up in the mountains. And Ruger Titanium had the expertise to produce cast titanium parts. And they made these pieces um, that ultimately went into the great big Bertha drivers. When the Bertha drivers first started, they were stainless. And then with the great big Bertha, they increased the size and went to titanium, uh, a titanium material design. So we're talking 460 now? That's that's part of the big, right? In marketing? Yes, yeah. 460 is the is the maximum displacement, CC displacement. But at the time, going from 350, 360 to 400 was a big was a big leap. From a technology standpoint, the larger you make the head from heel to toe and from from uh, crown to sole, the greater the greater the forgiveness of the club. So now you had all of these people who were, who were not quite as good as professionals increasing their performance, a lot better to play with, scores started dropping, golf took off. Golf, golf it was a big deal, man. They were selling clubs by the millions and led to the profitability of the company that we see today in Callaway. It's, a, it's arguably number one or number two in yeah, multi-billion dollar i mean ely on the stock exchange right it's a big deal but it all had its genesis in the development of the engineering that went into the making of the club heads in addition to that it was cheaper to make them so they were churning these things out by the millions and making vast sums of money doing what they were doing. 1997, 
1998 was a transitional year in the golf business because before that, China was in its infancy. Around 1997, 98, 99, uh, maybe a couple of years here or there, uh, China started manufacturing investment cast parts of all types and manufacturing in the United States no longer made sense from a cost standpoint. But we just saw the OEM but, ship there. It's not like we necessarily saw any Chinese brands at the time, right? Correct. Yeah. They were doing knockoff stuff, mm -hmm. right? Which has always been a thing, um, right? That's always been a thing. Those two schools of thought, I, I don't want to get too far off the beaten track in the in the technology portion of the discussion here but you know a lot of people are paranoid about knockoffs but knockoffs are the highest form of flattery if your club is good enough to knock it off then maybe you've got something good and there's always people that can't afford the real the real deal that will gravitate later on as they become more successful in their business careers, as they get more money, as they decide that they want the real thing. It's kind of like buying a knockoff Rolex, right? Looks good. Probably tells the time just fine. Is it a real Rolex? No. But all of a sudden you become the CFO of your company. You want a Rolex. So I, I happen to think that from what I saw about all the knockoff stuffs in the early days, maybe the paranoia about missing profits was a little misguided. Um, I think the golf club companies did just fine. Put brand awareness out there. Uh, everybody was getting knocked off and then people gravitated towards wanting the real thing, the real deal. That's a bit of a philosophical discussion, but it, it happened and it worked out pretty well for a lot of people. So manufacturing transitions over to China. They're still doing assembly over in the United States. And all of that sort of changed as we, as we've gone along over the last 20 years, most of the clubs now are being made overseas custom stuff is being made here just because of the one-offs, two-offs in the custom nature. Companies see it as a profit center. You have a couple of companies that are still holding out. Um, Ping is still a holdout. They still make everything in Phoenix. Um, they had the philosophy that they could control their quality control a lot better. I, I tend to think that that's true um will that you know is that changing as we go along yeah i mean the stuff coming out of china is fabulous quality we're playing it every day so um it's an evolutionary thing um i guess the last the last part of the discussion in terms of golf club heads is concerned is where are we going like what more can be yeah, done? That's kind of what, let me, let me ask this question real fast. I mean, how far, how much more technology and how, like, where's the line that the USGA and RNA is set and how close are we to that line as far as tech development goes? So 
so there's a couple of really seminal moments in golf club design. One, of course, was the ping lawsuit for square grooves. Um, you can directly trace that back to Mark Kalkavecchia. He is the owner of the ping lawsuit. He's playing in the British Open. I believe it was at Royal Birkdale. Grabs a ping lob wedge out from the heavy rough. Pins tucked six feet behind a bunker. Needs to make, uh, you know, par or whatever to, to win the British Open. Chops his lob wedge out. Takes one bounce on the driest, most concrete type green in the British Isles. Ball takes one, one bounce and stops dead. That was the, that was the moment when the USGA and the RNA said, whoa, 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 hang on a second here. Enough is enough. We got to do something about this. So they put ping through the, the, the ringers as far as the lawsuit was concerned for square grooves. And they gained control, care custody and control over the, over the design limitations that the manufacturers um, could put on equipment going forward. That's interesting. I didn't know that that was the seminal point. I mean, you'd use that word. I didn't realize it was like this moment that made them gain control over all like the engineering of clubs. And that was throughout the Mark, entire bag, not just freaking the wedges, Mark right? Mark Calcabec. Yeah, it just, it made them, it made yeah. them, it made them aware that I think that this whole thing could get out of control. I so, mean, you can YouTube so the clip. Up to that point, it was just this free-for-all, almost like Wild Wild West as far as manufacturing and, and changing variables go in builds. Like, it was that point where they're like, hey, we have to do something. And then they started adding regulations to the entire bag. Yeah, it was a bit, a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a, a technology bell curve, though, right? Because manufacturing limitations prohibited great advances uh, in design. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to design it; you got to be able to make it. So, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, you had these, you know, forged clubs with chrome plating that that had huge hosels on them because, because to make a forged club was, you know, fairly antiquated process. And, and it's the way it was always done. But if you look at the, look at some of the clubs in my, my, in my, uh, I call it the, the, the dungeon. It's my, it's my storage, my ancient club head, antique club storage. Uh, you know, you'll see clubs there that, are impossible to hit. Very, very small faces, huge hosels, center gravities are all over the place. Just simply from a technology standpoint, they couldn't they couldn't fix any of that. So um, you know, would the companies run amok? Yes, because it's it's like an arms race. It's like a cold war in golf clubs. Who whoever has the biggest bomb wins at the end of the day. You still see that on the advertising today. You know, who, who hits the furthest, who's, you know, who just it's on and on and on. It's distance, power wins the marketing game. So would they run amok? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent they would. You, you got, you got very, very creative engineering minds working overtime 
to try and make the longest next thing. Now, how do they plan they that out? Like, like, how do they, from the back end perspective, how can they say each driver is getting newer and newer and newer? And that's a question that we had written down, like the blend between performance and marketing and how that exists in the world of golf. Because I think that's an interesting conversation. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about, about that topic. Because every two, every year, every two years, every three years, we see, you know, a new, a new club get released and it's the newest club. It's the longest club on the market. When in reality, I mean, if it's, we have these, if it's tailor made, it's, if it's tailor made, it's every seven months, (laughs) but here, here's, here's the, here's the thing for every club that gets released, there's a product, there's a life, there's an engineering cycle. So the stuff that you're seeing being worked on today at the engineering labs uh, today, you probably won't see for two years. That, that's how far ahead they are. You have to develop not only the materials, you have to de- develop the design. They have to be compliant, but you, but you also have to be able to make them. And, and even more than that, on top of all of that, they have to stay together. So you can make a club that's so fragile and so light and so perimeter weighted that you can, that you, you know, within 10 swings, you could destroy it. It would just fall apart because it's so, it's so brittle. It's so fragile in, in construction. So that's another thing, you know, you see, you see them blending all sorts of verbiage into, um, in, into their marketing campaigns. Callaway is a great example of that. They have this jailbreak technology, which is nothing more than bars or rails put to reinforce the face in behind the scenes of what you don't see inside the head. And they call it jailbreak technology. Really what it is, it's bracing so the club doesn't fall apart. Um, you've got perimeter-weighted irons that are hollow inside Adams was the first one to come out with a speed slot on the bottom. Adams Golf. Taylor made bought Adams Golf, and the first thing they did was try and incorporate that speed slot. The problem is their engineers didn't figure out that when you put slots in the side of the face, the faces will cave in because there's nothing reinforcing them. So they went through a, a, a design problem with this model they had back six or seven years ago called the RSI model. Uh, where the faces were caving in on the sides because they tried to cut the speed slot not only out of the bottom, but also the side to get more of this trampolining effect, which they thought would translate into greater ball speeds through through the face flexing. Um, My point is, those, and I haven't are, heard this answer, but like, where are we at? If the line is here, I don't know if you can see me, if the line exists, right? From a regulation standpoint, where are we in relation to that line as far as tech development goes? Like, if I were to look at Callaway or Stell, I mean, like the performance, I, I, just year over year, all these reviews I watched, it's not like that drastically different, right? It's not like you're gaining orders of magnitude or standard deviations of performance from one OEM to the next. So, are we basically right on that line? I'm going to preface that, my answer, by saying I have no connection 
nor axe to grind with any manufacturer, but I will tell you this is the best answer that I can give you. Um, you will see very shortly talk change conversations change from distance to dispersion as in I don't want to hit it as far but I want to hit it straighter because you can only hit it so far through the technical limitations that the governing bodies have put on and yet and yet they're not putting any restrictions really per se on how straight you can hit it Straight is a skill, long is a strength. And they can control strength. They have a tough time regulating skill. So hitting it long is only good if you hit it reasonably straight. Here's the second part of the answer. This is the this is the one A part of the answer. You have components that have been ignored and that a lot of research and development is being put into space age materials and techniques from a shaft standpoint that have, that have very little to do with the head. So at one point, and I still hold, hold this as sacrosanct, you can put a terrible head on a great shaft and still get performance. I can go and pick out an aluminum driving range head Sure, it won't be optimal, but if you put a great shaft in that head, you're going to be able to hit the ball. If you put if you put a thousand dollar head on a shaft that's a piece of junk, you're going to have big problems. So you've seen all the development of the, in the last three four years with all the different models. You've got the 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 uh, models at True Temper, you've got the models at KBS, you've got the models at Fujikura, at Mitsubishi, and they're and now shaft prices have gone through the roof. Yes, seriously. At one day, at one day, thousand dollar not golf too long shafts. ago, a, one day not too long ago, a great shaft was eighty dollars. Now I get people all day long of every skill level that are inquiring about the physics behind four, five, six hundred dollar shafts asking me, what do you know about this? What can it do for me? And how do I go about getting one? How do I get properly fitted? So you say, where are we in the development cycle? Well, marketing has driven us to the advent, to the, to, to the, to the point where we are placing supreme importance on GC quad trackman uh, data for optimization. They call it fitting. It's not fitting. It's optimization. Fitting to a club builder is length, grip size, and lie angle. Period. Well, and shaft flex, right? But because you have so many options, shaft flex just becomes part of the optimization process. You, you have to have the proper lie angle. The proper length would help because it impacts so much. 
Um, and grip size is often ignored, but it's a very important feature in, ter- in terms of club yeah. building no, as I well. I really like that optimization because a lot of the times people, I don't think I've ever even really heard that term before. I've heard of fitting, obviously. Uh, but that's like a nice little interesting segue into into shafts and that's that's a big part of what you do right i mean can you talk a little bit about your background with with shafts and how you sort of got into that and then also is this sort of your level of expertise now is this primarily what you work with so being being ahead of the curve is always difficult realized a long time ago that there was a general lack of knowledge not only in the industry but with sales reps and with the ultimate consumer in the study of what I call tubular dynamics. A shaft is a tube. It's a fancy tube. It's a multi-compound, multi-material tube that has so much potential and so many variations that it's almost impossible to keep up with unless you make it your specific area of expertise. You have really, really smart people out there telling you what a shaft does for performance for an individual player but there is such a lack of knowledge about what a shaft actually consists of and how it works. As far as like the best the example of, of it, like kick point, I don't know. I mean, I hope we can get into it now. The best example I can give you, Daniel, is this. I take calls at least five, six, ten times a week from guys who are saying, I'm swinging a 130 gram shaft. I need to go to a 115 or a 120 because the 130 is too heavy. Now, I realized after some time and after fielding all of these calls and getting into conversations that the word the, the word here, heavy is what's misunderstood. The difference between 120 and 130 gram shaft is imperceivable. It is the size of a tip weight that you put in the end of a club that turns a club 10 grams heavier or in its absence makes it 10 grams lighter. Because that's a really interesting visualization. That's what 10 grams is a tip. If you held your hands outstretched and you put 10 material in your palms and the other palm didn't have 10 grams, and you closed your eyes, there's no way you could tell me that one palm weighed more than the other or one palm weighed less than the other. I'm sorry, you just can't. So this is what the discussion always ends up entailing. I give them my phone number instead of texting because the text is a master's or a PhD dissertation in tubular dynamics. And I give people my phone number and we talk it over. And I try and give them an, an, some sort of idea as to what they're talking about. And this is, this is what it comes down to. What they mean by heavy is not weight, not perception, it's performance. 
It's what that 10 grams is and where it's located along the tube that is a shaft. If you take 10 grams of graphite and you put it in your palm, it's probably going to overflow your palm. You won't be able to hold it all. If you take 10 grams of steel and put it in your other palm, it won't even fit in the bottom of a thimble. So if you take 10 grams and you put it 10 grams of steel in a, in a, in a steel shaft, Whoa, that's kind of crazy. Where do you locate that's a crazy that? visualization. So where do you put that 10 grams of steel? You put it Put it in the um, uh, sorry. Do you put it in the tip, or you know, do you put it in the midsection? And if so, what does it do? We'll get back to that in a second. Now think about the overflowing part of this. You've got ten grams of graphite. You got ten grams of graphite, and all of a sudden you've got this monstrous amount of material because graphite is so light. And where do you put that material? Well, where you put it in the shaft, along the line of the, uh, the shaft, determines whether or not you perceive that shaft to be heavy or not, because it'll make it stiffer. If you load it all up in the tip, then it's going to make the shaft so stiff that you can't get the ball up in the air. If you put it in the midsection, if you if you put it in the midsection of the shaft, uh, you're going to have a stiff midsection. Maybe the tip is a little bit higher launching, but the shaft is going to be real stable. If you put it in the ba in the back section, you have what's called a counterbalance shaft. And it's going to feel extremely light, even though it could have all the stiffness properties of a much stiffer shaft. So this goes for now, all. If you put this goes the, for all. This goes for irons as well, right? Because you had mentioned graphite. Okay. It does. I know they're starting to make graphite. That's a whole other topic, though, like illegal shafts and, and whatnot. But it's just that it's just it's just that it makes it. It's a lot more dramatic in graphite because you're dealing with more material. If you, look, if you look down the center of the shaft, down the center hole of the shaft from the tip, and you look at a steel fiber shaft or a Ventus iron shaft, uh, the new Axiom shaft, the hole is so small that the air escapes out of when you're installing them that makes the wall thickness of the shaft so stiff. A 125-gram steel fiber shaft is the one of the stiffest shafts you can play in all of golf. You have to be a monster to hit that shaft. But a 125 gram um, elevate shaft from True Temper in steel is one of the highest launching shafts you can find in an X-Flex. Yet they weigh the same. It's just interesting because so people that, don't if you know. That, like, obviously, you know, but no one is taught this, right? So you can't blame the person. All you can do is really educate them. So that's why I'm super pumped to have you on the podcast because that whole analogy of the steel versus graphite just kind of blew my mind, right? It's like, where exactly are you putting this weight on the shaft? I'm looking at my, where are you my Ventus right now. It's an 8X, by the way, baby. Uh-oh. Now, interestingly enough... Interestingly enough, you have you have 
how many different variations of shafts that the companies put out? Like take KBS, for example, which probably has the widest product variety, product variation across their product uh, line of any company out in the marketplace. They've got FLT, high flight shafts. They've got tour shafts, which are high launching. They've got money tapers. They've got they've got C taper, C taper light. They've now they've got S taper, money taper lights, and in all different weight categories. And talk about slicing and dicing. They've got somebody pegged. In, in every playing category and every age, uh, and that's not that's only in steel. They've got graphite as well. So there's something for everybody in the KBS line. But think about this for a moment. How do you fit that? How do you go to a fitter unless the fitter knows exactly what each shaft does and what each shaft is designed to do and what it's designed to feel like. But to, to kind of couple that, I mean, you, like you said earlier, you have to keep up with it. Like you have to be privy and up to date on this knowledge, right? It's like research. You have to dedicate, not your life work to this, but it's a big part of, of fitting the right shaft because they all have different product lines and how many fitters actually truly know in depth what each version or iteration of each shaft can do, right? Yeah, and it's true, Daniel, because and you also have to get away from from personal preference and and you have to get away Aesthetic from aesthetic looks like from, I look at the black Ventus and I'm like, oh, this thing is sick, right? Like you have to just get rid of that. Yeah. So you have these you have these personal shaft pr uh, prejudices. You have a guy, well, I can't hit KBS because it's, you know, the C taper is like a two by four. Well, that's because it's not it's not your shaft. It's not designed for you. You don't swing fast enough or hard enough. You have you have not you, you don't have the proper swing characteristics. You don't have the proper loading characteristics to handle that shaft. And and but in the fitter's mind, it it the shaft isn't any good because he can't hit it. All of a sudden, it becomes no good. It's very 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 rare for a fitter who's 24 years old, physically fit, hits the ball a mile to get it right for a 63-year-old guy who used to be able to play really, really well, um, who now probably still needs a good shaft from a feel standpoint, but needs a little higher launching because the swing speed is down and, and – needs to be properly fit into that kind of a shaft without those kind of prejudices playing, playing a part in the decision. And, and I say that because that's exactly where I am. I used to play, I used to play the stiffest shafts in the world. I used to play green label, dynamic gold, X 100, 140 gram steel shafts in McGregor persimmon woods. It was, it was crazy. Now, at 63 years old and still a single-digit handicap, I'm using an 80-gram uh, KBS or steel fiber graphite shaft 
that plays three quarters of an inch long and, you know, two degrees flat on my irons so that I can play it that long. And, you know, I've got the swing weights down to, to a, you know, I mean, my point is it's my set is totally customized. But you're obviously on the, you're on one side of the spectrum as far as like golf, not golf club junkie goes. So for like the average guy or a guy who maybe is a COVID golfer or a lady who's a COVID golfer, who's getting into the game and doesn't have this extensive background working, you know, with Lee Trevino fitting PGA tour pros for clubs. Like (laughs) golf is just so individualized and, the way we're at right now with technology, whether it be YouTube, XYZ, these podcasts, right? You can you can log in on you know your YouTube account and type in how to fix my slide, how to do the XYZ. Everything is everything exists there online, but I feel like with golf, you still have to speak to someone super knowledgeable. So for someone who wants to get fit for the right shaft, from your perspective, what can they do? Because they could on paper they could go to freaking dick sporting goods and have like a 16 year old kid tell them that this is the right driver shaft but it's just like the stock freaking stealth whatever shaft that comes with it right but that's not the right the right process so like what sort of frameworks would you coach someone through as they're getting fitted for a shaft to help them up you know sort of tee them off for success so i think the process is incremental incrementally from a incremental from a financial standpoint it's incremental from a skill standpoint and this is my big problem with the fitting game i'll call it the fitting game if you believe that it's for optimization purposes you also have to believe that your skill level has to be such that you deliver the club to the ball in a reasonably consistent manner. If you can't replicate your swing, you, for whatever limitations you have, either physical or, or, or equipment or even mental, if you can't replicate your swing, uh, any, any fitting and optimization should stop at A properly fitted club from a from a from a length and lie angle and and grip size. I, I I'm I'm a firm believer in that because what does optimization do? If you spend all that money to get optimized from an equipment standpoint, and then you take a few lessons or you you get better and you figure out that the ball needs to be played closer to you or further away or whatever have you, then all of a sudden your equipment your equipment requirements change. Your eye angle changes on your irons. Um, suppose you're in the middle of some physical transformation. Either you're getting older or you've decided to make a, uh, you know, a, a, a commitment to going to the gym. Now, all of a sudden, what do you do? Do you get refit again? Yeah, you should by theory. But um, you still have to distill it down to being able to deliver the club to the ball in a consistent fashion. Now, yeah, because a lot of the times some some guys will my, just get lessons right as they start, and it's just like, ah, oh, this is not it. You need to get, or excuse me, a, a fitting right as they start, and it, it's like this cringy thing for me. I'm like, dude, get a freaking lesson, go grind on the range, figure out your pattern, your miss, and then go get fit. Some people have that backwards, but keep going. 
No, I, 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 I wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And then they looked at the and they're like, hey, I, what's wrong with my swing? And that's when you know, like, this is not, this is not the right step or stage or phase, whatever you want to call it for this, this experience, right? How often does that so happen? So if you, if, if you're going to. Sure, it happens more often than not. If you were going to pin me. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were going to pin me down, if you were going to pin me down and, and, and get it to one point, the most single most important point involved in club building, club fitting, it's lie angle. I can play a club that's longer or shorter as long as it's sitting on the ground properly. As long as the toe isn't up in the air or the heel, you know, it's not, we're not clipping the heel or you're not clipping the toe because it's too flat. I, I would say that the single most important factor in club fitting is lie angle. You, you, can, you can live with a club that's a little bit longer or shorter. It may not be optimal, but you can't, you can't play unless you can't play proficiently unless the club is, is got the proper lie angle. That's that, that would be my answer to that. Um, Going back to the shaft, sorry, I, I'm a I, big tangent guy. You know, I like to go on these tangents, I like to keep it natural. No, kind of going back to the whole framework process of like finding the right fitter. It's tough. I mean, it's tough out there because don't, you shouldn't go to Dick Sporting Goods, right? But then, from a cost perspective, like Club Champion is on the exact other side of that spectrum, right? It's like, how do you recommend someone to get fit if they don't have access to you? So there's there's some really really good information out there. I think Ian Fraser at TXG has done a fantastic job at um, putting stuff out there for for the, democratizing it. That's a great word, um, but. I often tell people, unless it's unlimited, start off with a budget and don't move off your budget. Um, if, if, you're, if you're anywhere north of a 10 or 11 handicap, which means you're shooting you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 80 to 82 and higher, um, use clubs of your friend. Uh, I would spend money on getting clubs regripped, bent properly, um, and and go the used route before you make a significant investment. Because personal preference, and there's a lot of used equipment out there. I mean, I I I see you know tens of thousands of clubs out in the marketplace every day being offered up for sale. I think I think that there's a home for it, and I also think that 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 you know going through trial and error the way people you know there are people out there changing their golf clubs like they change their socks and underwear so take advantage of that um i think i think a driver shaft is really important and if if someone went for a driver fitting and limited the budget spend to going and getting fit for a driver shaft, then that's a good place to start because 
other things trickle down from that. I don't think it trickles trickles up from an iron fitting. I think you can I think you can get fit for a set of iron shafts and you may find out that the driver that you that you have selected you know you may want different right. things out. No, that's a good tip too. Uh, I like that trickle down. Yeah, because well, the other thing too is is that drivers are adjustable. And irons are adjustable to a certain degree, loft and lie angle and so on. But drivers are adjustable. You can add loft. You can close the face. You can do a lot of things that will be that that will be compensatory based on what the shaft is doing for you. I've had shafts that I love the feel of them. They weren't the, you know, the they probably weren't the best thing in the world for me. I had one shaft that I absolutely adored, and it was like way too stiff for me. So. I, I was having trouble, you know, getting proper launch out of it. So I ended up going to an 11 degree driver. And then a month later, I read in Golf Digest, Dustin Johnson went to a double X LEGP shaft and went from a nine degree, eight and three quarter degree lofted head. He went to a, 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 a tailor-made driver that had 11 degrees loft in it. That tells you something. If Dustin Johnson could go and to a stiff it, shaft. I mean, I'm assuming so like his golf profile was like fairly... It, He's similar, right, between clubs because of those two adjustments. I mean, different shaft, different head. Yeah, except the dispersion probably was important in his selection because he picked a shaft that was a lot lower torque and he could probably hit it straighter. But in order to hit it straighter, the ball wasn't launching as high as he wanted. So he just lofted up on the driver head. So at the end of the day, as long as the club head fits your eye and suits your eye, like spend money on shafts is, is kind of like a quick way of summarizing that. I mean, we're going to see more performance with a shaft that's more optimized, right? Given the fact that you're a player that can deliver the club at a consistent rate, spend money on a shaft. So brand preference plays, yes. And brand preference plays an awful lot if you ask me what the difference between a Titleist TSR and a and a uh, the the new paradigm from Callaway or a Ping G30 uh, 430 is, uh, we're talking tenths of a percent advantage. But the old adage is true: if you like the way it looks, it's going to perform better for you. So the specifications on these clubs are all maxed out. They're, they're at the highest levels of, of CT time, core, uh, the coefficient of restitution for the faces. They're all the hottest clubs. No manufacturer can, can, can go out there in the marketplace and say, well, we're not quite as fast. Our driver's not quite as fast, but it looks good. No, that's not going to get it. So. Okay, so the other thing I think that exists fundamentally as an issue in the world of golf is like, all right, we, we buy this new driver for the season or we just buy a new driver off the, off the shelf. We, we take off uh, the plastic, right? But that shaft is never – I mean, what are the odds that like a stock shaft is suited for the golfer that buys it? I'm assuming it's like – three percent or something super small so i'm wondering like from your perspective how you see that changing like from an oem 
side of things as far as like more customized or optimized shafts for for individuals off the rack is that a thing or how do you how do you see that because I, I see it as, as sort of an issue right there's all of these like it's almost like wasted material like if i were to buy a new stealth i would basically just buy the head and kind of like toss the shaft you know and just keep it in my room or sell it on offer up for like 50 bucks how do you see that changing in the, in the coming years That's a loaded one. I just did you hear me just take a deep breath? Because, no, I mean that's a huge issue, right? It's like um, these shafts are just like there, and they're garbage, right? Okay, full full disclosure. Full disclosure. I'm right now have been playing for the last half a dozen rounds. The non Ventus, non TR. Uh, uh, the non-Velicor stocked Ventus shaft that came out of a tailor-made driver. So, what is made for OEM stock versus like the TR, right. the hopped-up shaft? Yeah. What 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 does that mean? So, are the manufacturing tolerances tighter on the premium shafts, yes. Guys like to say they're watered down. I don't believe that. When I say believe, they can be. I don't think they use substandard materials. I just don't think that they fit the, from, from the, all the factories that I've been in, they just don't fit the statistical categories for variation in quality control it's like the weight sorted tour issue X100 shaft. There is no difference between a tour issue X100 shaft and a regular issue X100 shaft in dynamic gold, except all of the shafts within the tour issue are plus or minus half a gram. They're plus or minus two or three grams, which in the regular issue, which in theory will affect um, the oscillation factor, the, the frequency of the shaft. Let's get back to the thing we were talking about 20 minutes ago. Is that going to matter to somebody who's out there shooting 85? Is it going to make it, is it going to make them better? Is it going to make them a better golfer as opposed to getting a, you know, $400 set of iron shafts or a $400 driver shafts and making sure that the head is correctly fit or the irons are bent to the correct lie angle because I guarantee you one thing, if the irons aren't bent to the correct lie angle, those $400 shafts aren't going to work, aren't going to matter. So it only really matters if you're a drill player or, or, or someone who has like a lot of potential, I guess, or is a lower handicap is, I guess, a better way of putting it. But that is a tough question. Yeah, but there's two schools of thought. There's two schools of thought. If I think it makes me better, does it make me better? Because golf is very much a mental game, right? Do I, do, am I am I am I looking am I looking the look and playing the part? Do I look the part? Well, okay, that's fine. Some people are some people are like that. There are a lot of people who go out there and they take the labels off all of their clubs because they don't really give a damn. They don't want to see the, you know. There are some guys that if you get a little scratch or nick in the sandwich face, he's out buying a new wedge because he's also OCD. He can't stand the 
the, the you know the look of the uh, the wedge with a little mark on it. Um, it, so it just depends on what you want. But again, we get back to the phrase optimization. The tour player, can the tour player notice? Yes. Uh, can a great amateur notice? Yeah, I think so. College player notice? Uh, yeah, maybe. Faster, the harder you swing, the more of the variations will show up on the data. That's the best way to describe it. Um, I guess from a fitting technology standpoint, there, that maybe that's kind of what I was trying to drive at, thinking about it, reflecting on that question. Because I, I got fitted. I mean, you obviously listened to the episode with Sam. Really, really love Lab. I've been loving the, the Mesel one. But the technology that they use to fit putters is pretty cool and pretty seamless. Like it took 20 minutes. I just texted, maybe even less than that, 10 minutes. I texted Sam. Um, you know, the, the photo, I was up against the wall, whatever. Five minutes later, he texted me what to buy. I bought it. Boom. Really easy, really simple. I'm kind of just wondering, like, what the future of fitting will look like. Because right now, it's very, you know, okay, you got to book an appointment at a fitter, a true spec, a club champion. You take an hour, two hours, you know, you select whether it's full bag or irons or putter, XYZ. It ends up costing, you know, being fairly expensive. I'm just kind of wondering like from your perspective, where do you see that changing? Is there like technology that exists where you could maybe make like a, a more mobile sort of fitting that is as dialed or is as good as, as using TrackMan or GC Quad or something and getting dialed on, on technology like that? So, so this is where we get into a really, really difficult dis discussion that you're either you're a prophet or a heretic. One or the other. And that is the distinction between fitting indoors, hitting off mats, hitting out of a, you know, in a bay with an algorithm, or whether or not you stand outside and you pound balls off the turf and see the ball in the air and, and see what the ball is actually doing in flight. Um, I guess you know which one that I... I lean on and that is I'm a ball in the air kind of guy, right? I want to see what the ball does. I want to see what the, I want to see what the turf interaction is. You know, that's, that's, that's another big thing with fitting is turf interaction. You can have it. You can have entirely the wrong set of, of grinds on your irons. You, you know, like if you're a digger, you should be using a ZX five type, with a wider sole so that you don't get into digging. If you're, if you're a picker and you, and you use, you know, really wide soles, you're going to, you're, you may have some real problems. It, it, your angle of attack means everything. Um, oftentimes guys will get fit for a driver, but they'll ignore everything else. And they'll say, well, because I'm using a six, five, 70 gram, you know, Oh, I must need a tour issue X 100 set of shafts. No. It's a more holistic study, right? It's what iron heads are you settling on? And just because you use, just because you use Project XLZ six five hundred twenty five gram iron shafts in a set of, you know, Callaway MBs, 
doesn't mean that if you put them in your new Strixon ZX7s, they're going to work the same. That's a, that's a complete fallacy. The heads are different. They could be longer from heel to toe. They could have a different sole grind. They might have a sharper leading edge. They may have a little bit more offset or a little less offset. So bottom line, what do people do? Are people so, screwed? Or like, where can they find you? Like, where can they get fitted by you? Uh, I'm sorry. It's I'm all sorry that, now I'm just that like, damn, it... I'm probably playing the wrong set no. right now. I, I play the, the TaylorMade P7 MCs. I'm like wondering, questioning everything, questioning my fitting. Like, is this right? Like, it's it's just hard. It's it's tough to navigate as a consumer, I guess, as as someone who's more novice than than you, for for example, right? So, I think the answer to your question is this: It's not doom and gloom. There are very very skilled people out there. The question is, how do you find them? Um, I would rely on word of mouth. I don't think that because you pay somebody $300 for a full bag fitting means you're going to get $300 worth of value. You, you want to have somebody that you want to get into a conversation about things like, um, or try to understand the difference between fitting and fitting to buy a set of clubs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, word of mouth means everything. And I would start, I would start actually with a discussion with a PGA professional. Um, they may not have the full gamut of shafts available. But if the conversation starts out like, Hey, could you take a look at my clubs that I'm currently using now? Are they are they fitted for me from a mechanical standpoint? Are they the right length? Are they the right lie angle? What do you think about my grip thickness? Then a lot of the extracurricular fitting can come from trial and error. You can go to demo days. Um, obviously, manufacturers that run demo days, they want to sell you their equipment. But everybody has a wide array of shafts, okay? Um, everybody has Ventus. Everybody has, you know, KBS Tour iron shafts. Everybody has Tour Issue X100s. You, 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 can, you can get them. I don't, think that I, I don't think that I would necessarily go to a place where I'm at the whim of somebody who's trying to stream me into something, I, I want to be in control of the decision making process. And, you know, demo days are a great, are a great way to go with very little pressure to feel, to feel different shafts. And I think Titleist, I think Titleist does a good job at demo days. I think Callaway does a good job at demo days. I think um, I think Strixon is coming on board with, and you know they all have wedges. You know you can you can make a you could make an event out of it. Uh, I'm just not a big fan of the of the of the club fitting streaming methodology that's you know that's used at some places in order just to, just to get you 
Well, higher I wonder price like, what percentage of and street... amateur golfers are properly fit. That's something that kind of comes to mind. It's like probably, you know, like a very, very small percentage, right? Of people who are actually playing clubs they should be playing. So, yes. And then there's another thing to talk about on top of that, and that is at what point do you stop fitting? At what point do you, do you just cut the chase and say, I'm happy with what I have. I'm about as good as this can possibly be. If I, if I want to hit it further, I'll go, I'll, you know, I'll go to the gym. If I, if I want to hit it better, I'll go to the range more. If I want to lower my scores, I'm going to go spend more time on the putting green. Um, at what point, at what point do you fish or, or cut bait? And human nature says, I can always get two tenths of a percent better. If I, if I go to a, if I go to a Ventus seven X and I tip it three quarters of an inch instead of half an inch, I, 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 I may be, I may hit further. If I go to 43 and a quarter versus 40, 43 and a half on my three wood, I, I, I might, I might squeeze, you know, six more yards out of it. Humans don't stop. It's the, it's the illusion that is rife in golf. It's just, it's just all over the place. Funny game. Okay. And that's what fuels that's the club. what fuels the yeah, industry, right? Fuels the club. It's what fuels the industry. Well, I'm really glad that look, we're, we're coming up on the two hour mark. So if you ever want to hop on again, David, I really enjoy this conversation. It's like very valuable, I think, because people, you know, have so much information. There's so much information that exists online, but you don't necessarily know who you're getting it from, you know, and you're an absolute expert in golf shafts, golf equipment, you're an industry veteran as well. So I'm just really, really thrilled and, and super grateful for, for you giving me your time and the audience your time. Um, but from your perspective, do you have any sort of like closing, closing remarks or closing thoughts? And also where can these guys find you? So I, I, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the, 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 not the flashy, the flashy sales kind of guy in this, all, all of this equation. So getting these kinds of forum, like, Dave Tuttleman, for example, who is the best kept secret in the entire world of golf, um, getting these opportunities to 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 set some of the record straight, to preach some of the gospel according to equipment, is is a lot of fun, and it sort of validates a lifetime of work and and trial and error and experience. So I, I really appreciate what you do, and I'm I'm thankful for for the opportunity. Um, I, I have a, uh, new gig that I've called, uh, Dave Kelly golf enterprises, DK golf enterprises. Um, I'm available at, um, uh, on my email online. I do fittings for lab golf. Um, I do fittings. Uh, and a retailer uh, on the website for Fujikura and for BGT. 
Um, I'm located in Nashville, Tennessee. The BGT web wedge shafts. I've never hit them or used them, but they look, oh man, because I have the BGT, the stability shaft, and, and an older putter before I switch to the Mez. Do you like those wedge shafts? Well, you're sorry to interrupt. Yeah, they're in all my wedges. No, no, they're not, they're in all my wedges, and I'm a big I'm a big fan of the people at BGT. They do a great job. Um, if you want more technical, if you want more technical data, um, they have a, they have a pretty good website. It's it's um, it lays things out really well. Um, the short the short answer is they're really good. The split- Dispersion is sick. Dispersion is sick with them. I mean, you just where the where you hit it is where the ball goes with these wedge shafts. Uh, my only suggestion would be don't go too stiff, um, be, because dispersion and firmness go hand in hand. I had on JP Harrington um, a couple of weeks ago. He 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 has a JP Golf, the like the boutique wedge brand, and he's been using those a lot of in, in his builds. Yeah. Um, but that's like my dream setup right there. The JP Premier and then some of the BGTs as far as wedges go. I'm just like smiling thinking about it, you know, one day, one day. Well, you you um you know who to call if you want some wedge shafts. I think I can hook you up with somebody. Wink 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 nudge nudge. No, but I really, really appreciate it, Dave. Thank you so much. If you ever want to hop on again, I'm here for you. And you know, there's still a lot of stuff we didn't cover, but uh yeah, you know, we can always hop on again, you know. We still have a lot to talk about. Yeah.